Our text this morning comes from the book of Kings, 1 Kings chapter 20. As we have been meditating through the book of Kings, especially around the lives of Elijah and Elisha. And I know that this is a big passage, but it's really one connected story. It's one war with two battles, and then the outcome of the war. So, although it's a, it's a lengthy passage, let's pay attention and hear what God is telling us through His Word. First Kings chapter 20. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his hosts together... And there were thirty and two kings with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria, and warred against it. And he sent messengers to Ahab, king of Israel, into the city, and say unto him, Thus saith Ben-Hadad, Thy silver and thy gold is mine, thy wives and also thy children, even the goodliest are mine. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, according to thy saying, I am thine and all that I have. And the messengers came again and said, Thus speaketh Ben-Hadad, saying, Although I have sent unto thee, saying, Thou shalt deliver me thy silver and thy gold and thy wives and thy children, yet I will send my servants unto thee tomorrow, about this time, and they shall search thine house and the houses of thy servants, and it shall be that whatsoever is pleasant in thine eyes, they shall put it in their hand and take it away. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark, I pray, unto you, I pray you, and see how this man seeketh mischief. For he sent unto me for my wives and for my children and for my silver and for my gold. And I denied him not. And all the elders and all the people saying unto him, Hearken not unto him, nor consent. Wherefore he said unto the messenger of Ben-Hadad, Thou my lord, the king, all thou didst send for thy servant at first, I will do. But this thing I may not do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. And Ben-Hadad sent out him and said, The gods do so unto me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people that follow me. And the king of Israel answered and said, Tell him, Let not him that girdeth on his harness Boast himself as he that put it, putteth it off. And it came to pass when Ben-Hadad heard this message as he was drinking, he and the kings in the pavilions, that he say unto his servants, Set yourselves in array. And then and they set themselves in array against the city. And behold, there came a prophet unto Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus saith the Lord. Hast thou seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into thine hands. This day thou shalt know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? And he said, Thus saith the Lord. Even by the young men of princes of the provinces. Then he said, who shall order the battle? And he answered, Thou. Then he numbered the young men of princes of the provinces, and they were two hundred and thirty-two. And after them he numbered all people, even all the children of Israel, being seven thousand. And they went out at noon. But Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the pavilions, he and the kings, the thirty and two kings that helped him. And the, young, and the young men of the princes of the promises went out first. And Ben-Hadad sent out, and they told him, saying, There are men come out of Samaria. And he said, Whether they come, they become out for peace, 
take them alive. Or whether they become out for war, take them alive. So these young men of the princes of the provinces came out of the city, and the army which followed them, and they slew every one his men. And the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and smoked the horses and chariots and slew the Syrians with a great slaughter. And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said unto him, Go, strengthen thyself, and mark, and see what thou doest. For at, at the return of the year, the king of Syria will come up against thee. And the servants of the king of Syria said unto him, Their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this thing. Take the kings away, every man out of his place, and put uh, captains in their rooms. And number thee an army like the army thou hast lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot, and we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he hearkened unto their voice, and did so. And it came to pass, at the return of the war, that Ben-Hadad numbered the Syrians, and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were numbered, and were all present, and went against them. And the children of Israel pitched before them like two little flocks of kids. But the Syrians filled the country. And there came a man of God. And he spake unto the king of Israel and said, Thus saith the Lord. Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys. Therefore will I deliver all this great multitude into thine hand, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. And they pitched over against the other seven days. And so it was that in the seventh day the battle was joined, and the children of Israel was slew of the Syrians and hundred thousand footmen in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek into the city. And there a wall fell upon twenty and seven thousands of the men that were left. And Ben-Hadad fled, and he came into the city, into an inner chamber. And his servants say unto him, Behold, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us, I pray thee, put sackcloth on our loins, and ropes around our, our heads, and go out to the king of Israel." Peradventure, he will save thy life. So they girded sackcloth on their loins and put on ropes around their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, Thy servant Ben-Hadad saith, I pray thee, let me live. And he said, Is he yet alive? He is my brother. Now the man did diligently observe whether anything would come from him and did hastily catch it. And they said, Thy brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go ye, bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came forth to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said unto him, The cities which my father took from thy father I will restore, and thou shalt make streets for thee in Damascus, as my father in Samaria. Then said Ahab, I will send thee away with this covenant. So he made a covenant with him and sent him away. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets say unto his neighbor, in the word of the Lord, Smite me, I pray thee. And the men refused to smite him. Then said he unto him, because thou hast not obeyed the voice of the Lord. Behold, as soon as thou art departed from me, a lion shall slay thee. And as soon as he was departed from him, a lion found him and slew him. Then he found another man and said, Smite me, 
I pray thee. And the man smote him, so that in smiting him, he, he wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, and disguised himself with ashes upon his face. And as the king passed by, he cried unto the king, and he said, Thy servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a man turned aside and brought a man unto me, and said, Keep this man, if by any means he be missing, then shall thy life be for his life, or else thou shalt pay a talent of silver. And as thy servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said unto him, So shall thy judgment be. Thyself has decided it. And he hasted and took the ashes away from his face. And the king of Israel discerned him that he was of the prophets. And he said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, because thou hast let go out of thy hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction. Therefore thy life shall go for his life, and thy people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house heavy and displeased, and came to Samaria. This for the reading of God's law, of God's word. Back this morning, as we read, comes from the book of Kings, 1 Kings chapter 20. But before we begin, let's ask for the Lord's blessing upon his word. O most holy God, Lord of hosts, most exalted King, as we come into thy presence, Lord, we ask that we would hear thy word as coming from the throne room of God. Thus saith the Lord to us today, thy word, thy voice to thy people. O Lord, speak to us. Open our ears to hear the voice of the King, our eyes to see the glory of the King, and turn our hearts to follow and obey thy word. And we pray this. In Jesus' name, amen. What a good movie should have. I searched online, and apparently, a good movie needs an appealing story, convincing characters, a good plot, and to really make it a unique narrative, the story should have an unexpected turning point, a plot twist that gives the, a surprising closure to the story. That is the moment that you realize that there was a master script guiding all the story, a master planner planner preparing you for the climax of the narrative. Well, I want you to notice that the passage today has all that. And if it is astonishing when a movie maker manages to do that, how much more impressive is it when God does that with real history? This chapter marks the beginning of the downfall of Ahab and his house. From chapters 20 to 22, we will see a sequence of failure by Ahab and how it led to his destruction. One main theme in the book of Kings is that although kings fail, the word of God never fails. The word of God stands forever. And like a master script guiding the story of the universe, God's providence is always successful. Today we'll see how the Lord of hosts displays His glory before the earthly kings. No king can compare to Him. No army can frustrate His plans. There is no match for the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is the king who judges kings, and who holds the rulers, all rulers, in the palm of his hands. There is no match for the Lord of hosts. And to meditate in our text, we'll divide it into three points. First, 1 to 21, the undeserved mercy of the Lord of hosts. Second, 22 to 30, the unsurpassed power 
of the Lord of hosts. And third, 31 to 43, the undefiled justice of the Lord of hosts. The first two movements in the narrative are parallel to each other, as we will see, preparing us for this big plot twist at the end of this section. But first, let's consider his undeserved mercy. The text begins by introducing us a new villain. Verse 1, the king of Syria, called Ben-Hadad, which means son of Hadad. But Hadad was not his father, but actually another false god. Hadad was believed to be another uh, weather deity, another false god of that time. So the evil Ben-Hadad managed to put together a coalition of 32 kings with him by his side to fight against Israel. And he moved to besiege Samaria, the capital of Israel at that time. After surrounding Samaria, Ben-Hadad then proceeds to dictate what his terms for surrender are. Verse 2 and 3. Ben-Hadad demands all of Israel's possessions. He demands their silver, gold, even their wives and children. He demands it all, proving to really be a, a vicious and evil king. But the surprise is not even his demand. The surprise is what Ahab answers. That he actually consents to the request of Ben-Hadad. Verse 4. And the king of Israel, Ahab, answered and said, My lord, O king, according to thy saying, I am thine and all that I have. Ahab treats Ben-Hadad as a superior as if he had already won the battle, hoping to preserve his life and his possessions, treating him as, oh Lord, as his Lord. It's quite ironic that Ahab had not been filled with fear before when he was before Mount Carmel, with all the power of God revealed from heaven. But now, he's afraid of common men. He wasn't afraid of the Lord of hosts as his power was displayed before his eyes. But now before common man, Ahab is filled with fear. By the way, this in universal reality. Someone will rule your fear. Whether it's God's first or wicked man. But someone will rule your fear. If you don't fear who God is, who the Lord of hosts is, you will unavoidably fear men. But the opposite is also true. The more you fear God, the more you fear this Lord of hosts, less, the less you fear common men. So we have the scenario here with really two bad kings, one evil and one coward, but both wicked kings, putting Israel between two bad choices, nowhere to go, no hope, two bad kings. Ben-Hadad sends a message that he would do this immediately and makes it clear that the house of Ahab and his family would not be spared. Verses 5 and 6. So Ahab's pitiful attempt to bargain didn't succeed. And Ben-Hadad was raising now his demands only now Ahab called his elders. He didn't care to ask their advice first, but now finally he asked them. Ahab had consent to give gold, silver, women, children, but not from his possessions. You see, he thought he could spare his possessions. He was okay to give the people's possessions, but not his. He thought maybe the enemies would spare his own life and his possessions. And the elders give Ahab a firm response of denial. But Ahab still tries to soften the answer. Verse 9, tell my Lord King, still referring to Ben-Hadad as Lord and King, all that thou didst send for thy servant at first, I will do. But this thing I may not do. I mean, in case it wasn't obvious until now, the writer of the book of Kings is depicting Ahab as a coward. 
I mean, he agreed to give all the possessions of the people. He was a coward. He was afraid of man. I can imagine Ahab saying this to the messenger and all the elders in the war room looking at him and thinking, what do you mean this, this thing I may not do? We shouldn't do any of it. Why do you mean you were okay with giving our women and children, but not yours? We shouldn't consent to this at all. He was a coward. He was okay to give all the possessions of the people. If Israel was only in the hands of this king, they would be doomed. No hope whatsoever. Both wicked kings. There was no mercy for the people whatsoever in any of these kings. So in response, Ben-Hadad makes a very bold claim that not even the dust of Samaria would be enough to fill the angry hands of his followers. Verse 10. And he repeats a sentence very similar to the one that Jezebel said, let the gods, let the gods do to me as they please if I don't destroy Samaria. But we know that this didn't really work for Jezebel at first, right? So we know that this sentence didn't work before. What about now? So Ahab sends a modest but provocative response, verse 11. Let not him who girds on his armor, that is, who puts on his armor, boast like him who takes it off. Don't assume you already won the war, Ben-Hadad. This is similar to a saying that I learned recently. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. Perhaps it is the most knowledgeable thing that Ahab said so far. Similar to what we find in Proverbs 27, verse 1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. In other words, it isn't over till it's over, Ben-Hadad. Don't boast as if the war was already over. Don't boast about tomorrow because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. The truth is that on this side of eternity, in the present age that we are living in, we will always be girding ourselves, putting on our armor, without knowing what tomorrow will bring. We can make plans, but you better not be proud. You better not be too proud about your plans. And certainly don't think that you, had, that you have a hold of everything, that everything is under your control and everything will happen as you have planned. As this passion, passage is going to reveal, pride indeed goes before destruction. Don't trust in earthly power, but trust in the all-powerful God. Don't put your trust in earthly powers, even in your plans, but trust in the all-powerful God behind all things. Just before the battle, the kings were drinking and potting, verse 12. They were celebrating before their own defeat. I mean, this is an image that resembles very much Belshazzar before he was killed at the hand of Darius in Daniel chapter 5. They were very proud of themselves. As if they were safe. Or in this case, as if the battle was already won. But that was when things started to change. A prophet of the Lord appears out of nowhere. is not called by Ahab. And even though Ahab persecuted the prophets. Remember so far we have been seeing how Ahab and Jezebel have been persecuted and slaughtering the prophets. But here again, out of nowhere... An unknown prophet of the Lord appears. Verse 13. And behold, there came a prophet unto Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into thy hand this day, this day, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. When the situation of Israel seemed to be lost, no hope whatsoever, two wicked kings, no hope for Israel, 
That's it. That was going to be the end. On the one hand, the wicked Ben-Hadad, and on the other hand, the coward Ahab, the Lord gives a promise of sure deliverance. There comes the light. In the darkest moment, there comes the light, the promise of God, of sure deliverance. The Lord was dealing with two wicked kings. On the one hand, he would be punishing the wickedness and arrogance of Ben-Hadad. And on the other hand, God is showing his mercy, his undeserved mercy, by giving another chance of repentance to a persecutor like Ahab. And thou, Ahab, shalt know that I am the Lord. Until now, Ahab did not recognize the Lord as God. And the Lord has given him another chance. Another chance at another time and another time. Which will only prove to make him even more unexcusable. The promise of God sounds great, but Ahab has a few concerns. Verse 14. Who shall order the battle? And he that is the Lord answered, You, Ahab. Ahab was to coordinate a plan of battle along with 232 young men and 7,000 men of Israel. So God would deliver them. But if Ahab was to take possession of God's blessing, he must demonstrate confidence in it. He must lead the people and trust that the promise of God is true. Now, it's easy to miss this here, but remember that this story is like a movie unveiling before our eyes, directed by a master storyteller controlling all things. Twice we heard in our text, Thus saith Ben-Hadad, verses 2 and 5. And then the, the camera shifts to the other side of the battlefield, and the Lord answers, Thus saith the Lord. Also two times, verse 13 and 14. This is one of the most common expressions to introduce the divine speech. Thus saith the Lord. So authoritative, right, is the divine speech coming. The author is contrasting Ben-Hadad's words with God's words. It is once again Yahweh, the Almighty Lord, against the false gods. Ben-Hadad say this, but the Lord say that. So which word will prevail? So we will see who is the one who determines this story. Who is the one who controls the story? Once again, we find Ben-Hadad excessively confident. Verses 16 to 18, he's, he's drinking for the second time. Right before a battle, he's spotting drinking. And because he was overly confident, he commanded to take men alive who were coming on his way. It's much harder to capture someone alive. This would prove not only to be an arrogant decision, but also a disastrous idea. And so it happened exactly as the Lord told it would. The unbelieving Ahab is used to deliver Israel from the hands of Ben-Hadad. And Ben-Hadad flees, has to flee humiliated. But the big question is, why? Why was the Lord gracious to Ahab? After everything he had done, why didn't the Lord leave Ahab to die in that place? The Lord has done so much. And Ahab was still persecuting God's people, killing the prophets. Why didn't the Lord leave Ahab to die in that place? The truth is that neither Ahab nor Israel deserve this deliverance by the Lord. Neither Ahab nor Israel would be able to accuse God of giving them a second chance, or third, or fourth. They had so many chances to repent, so many chances to turn from their idolatry to the one true God. 
They had so much, and yet they were unable to recognize the grace of the Lord. And I ask you, what about you? How many times have you seen God's undeserving mercy being displayed? Or how many times have you heard God's undeserved mercy being preached to you? How many times? Perhaps many more than Ahab or Israel. How many people did God send to you to give a word to you, to warn you, to call you out? God's not calling those who deserve to be saved, but precisely because we were condemned if left to ourselves. He rescues his people. Thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Do you know? Do you know that he is the Lord? Do you know that he is your Lord? Do you know that the Lord of hosts shows undeserving mercy to those who come to him? Don't seek refuge in other places, other kings. Come and see his mercies. No one else is as merciful as he is. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord. But that was not the end. The Lord would once again humble both kings. This time by showing his unsurpassing power. Our second point. The sweet enjoyment of victory was short-lived. Soon after, another prophet comes and announces, giving a warning, verse 22. The enemies of Israel would not give up. A year from that day, they would come again to attack, and they, they should stay vigilant. So the Syrians had this wonderful idea. Verse 23. Their gods, there is the, God of, the gods of Israel, are gods of the hills. Therefore, they are stronger than we are. But let us fight against them in the plain. And surely, we shall be stronger than they. You see, both Jerusalem and Samaria were in the mountains. So their conclusion is that their victory is because their God is the God of the mountains. It's a matter of where they fight. Not in the name of whom they fight, but where they fight. Here we see really a display of bad theology. And how bad theology gives space for bad decisions. How do people make bad decisions in their lives? Bad theology. Behind most stupid ideas is a bad theology. Perhaps, perhaps we have heard many of these. Oh, pastor, we moved out of town to this night and we found this nice church they don't really preach the bible you see but the people is nice bad theology pastor the relationship between me and my wife is not working anymore so we are going to divorce bad theology oh i i think it is okay to send my teenage son for a, a lady gaga show or whatever they are going after it's bad Theology, bad theology. Sometimes we wonder how people come up with these terrible ideas. Oh, there is bad theology behind. And usually bad theology comes accompanied with bad companies too. If you surround yourself with bad counselors, you will fill your mind with bad theology. You will grow cold from your relationship with the church. Brothers, that's a recipe for disaster. That's a spelling disaster with big letters. So because of this bad theology, the Assyrians wanted to fight on the plain, outside of the supposed domain of the Lord of Israel. It would not just be a battle between men, but between worldviews, a battle between the God of Israel and the false gods of Syria. 
would be a, a clash of worldviews. Israel, although walking in rebellion, although Israel was walking in rebellion before God, Israel would prove to be the most powerful kingdom on earth. Because although Israel abandoned God, God didn't abandon his people. So the mighty Syrian army was back, once again surrounding Israel, like two little flocks of goats, verse 27. Israel was a small army indeed, filled in numbers, but led by the Lord of hosts. It is in that scenario, when things were looking really bad for Israel once again, that we read in verse 28, and there came a man of God. We see for the third time the expression, thus saith the Lord. For the third time, a prophet comes to Ahab with good news. Telling how the Lord would deliver them. Interesting how the Lord moves this time from the individual to the nation. In verse 13, God said, Thou, Ahab, shall know that I am the Lord. You in the singular. Then in verse 28, he says, Ye, Israel, shall know that I am the Lord. You in the plural, all of you. Both king and the people are given a second chance to marvel at God's undeserving grace. A salvation that they didn't deserve to experience. For the second time, Syria is defeated. In verses 29 and 30, we have the Syrians' desperate attempt to flee once again. All of Ben-Hadad's Political attempts failed. First, he believed that he had an advantage because he was on playing ground and because he was in a numerical advantage. Both, but both failed and thousands, hundreds of thousands were killed. Then he trusted in the walls of Aethfak, verse 30, which actually served as a burial place for 27,000 of his remaining men. And finally, in a desperate act, he thought he could hide. He went to the inner chamber thinking that he could hide. By defeating the Assyrians, God is both delivering Israel and vindicating his name as the true God. Ye shall know that I am the Lord. It's true that the Assyrians needed their Theology corrected, but Israel was not far. The theology, the God of the hills and not of the valleys, was in their minds too. For years they borrow the pagan way of thinking that maybe God's power didn't extend outside of Israel's domain, outside of Israel's property. It's easy even being in the church to borrow the pagan worldview. There is a, a segment of modern evangelicals that argues that God macro-manages and not micro-manages. By that they mean that God determines the big things. Yes, he, he created the universe. He, he determines the big things. But He's not really in control of all small single details. When hard trial comes, we borrow that world mentality and thinking that maybe what is happening is outside of God's power, outside of God's capacity. See, maybe He is the God of the hills and not of the valleys. It's easy to think that. The God of the church, but not the God of work. Of, econo of economy, the God of church, but not the God of medicine, the God of church, but not the God of politics. Maybe there are certain things that are outside of his power and capacity. 
You see, idolatry creates a myopic view of God. It makes us not see fully who God is in His power. It blocks you from seeing God's sovereignty in all areas of your life. Nothing is left outside. The idea that God rules only over certain areas in your life is secular. God rules the spiritual area of your life. But maybe you think, well, but not science. But not your work, not your marriage. If you think that, you're really saying that God is the God of the hills, but not of the valleys. Do not think there is any restriction to the power of the Lord of hosts. Nothing in the universe is outside his domain. His power, his sovereign decree, nothing in the universe escapes his voice. The Lord reigns, period. The Lord reigns. He rules over all things, hills and valleys, all things, all the universe. Not even death could stop him. Don't think the powers of this world can be of any match, of any, give any restriction to the Lord of hosts. Not even death could be in opposition to him. The kings of this world are nothing compared to the Lord of hosts. Not only his mercy is undeserved, and his power is unsurpassed, but his justice is also undefiled. Our third point, his undefiled justice. There is now a big turn of events. The tables are flipped. And now Ahab is the one in control of the situation, or at least apparently in control. We can notice two big changes in Ben-Hadad's posture. First, his condition. He, he has now sackcloth and ropes around his neck. He's humbled. Second, his temper. Now Ben-Hadad treats Ahab as superior. Verse 32. Thy servant Ben-Hadad saith, I pray thee, let me live. It's just like when a political campaign is over. And now all the political parties seem to come together, to come along. All those who were once sworn enemies now make peace and come together, seeking to create alliances. But what is surprising is Ahab's foolish response. In verse 32, Ahab's response is to treat Ben-Hadab as brother. As brother. Ahab lets his pride guide him. And, then, and this leads him to make terrible decisions. To make a covenant with a pagan king. Of course, Ben-Hadad immediately understood Ahab's kind gesture of calling him brother. This was the sign that he needed to know. He, he, this was the sign that he needed to know that he was safe. Well, he can come out of where he's hiding. He's safe. He's a brother. Ahab even welcomes the Syrian king in his own chariot. Verse 33. See, that's a privilege that he didn't give to Elijah when Elijah was coming down that mountain in the rain. And soon the the two kings started some negotiations. Verse 34. Ben-Hadad promised restitution and gives Ahab an economic advantage in trade. But this is nonsense again. Ben-Hadad is not promising anything that didn't belong to Israel already in the first place. This was rightfully theirs already. And now Ahab consults no one, neither prophet nor elders. Ahab was completely blind by his pride. And that it's, that's just human nature. That's just our nature, isn't it? That's what, just what we do. When things are going wrong, we surround ourselves with a multitude of counsel. But when things appear to be going well, we think that we don't need no one. We think that we don't need any 
word of advice. Like Ahab, we think that we have all that we need. Ahab was gaining nothing and thinking that was, he was gaining everything. It's interesting how from verse 26 onwards, you have the same story repeating itself. Verses 26 to 34 is a mirror of verses 1 to 25. First in verses 26 and 27, you have the Syrian attack, just as in verses 1 to 12. Then, verse 28, you have a prophet, or in this case, a man of God, visiting Ahab, just as in verses 13 and 14. Kind of giving Ahab a preview of the outcome of the battle, both times. Then, verse 29 and 30, surprise, surprise, Ahab wins the battle, just as the prophet said, just as in the first time in verses 15 to 21. So, the story is repeating itself. And then we have a sequence of Ben-Hadai on the other side of the battlefield taking advice from his servants, which is in both cases bad theology, as we saw in verses 23 to 25 and verses 32 to 34. So the story is repeating itself. The two bad battles are repeating itself. We could call this a prophetic déjà vu. It's not by coincidence that things are happening as they happened before. The biblical writer wants us to have this I told you so moment. To realize that the word of God is prevailing. Nothing can change that. That everything will happen according to what God has said it would. No different. They might come up with new plans, but the result is exactly the same. Nothing escapes the power of the Lord of hosts. And that could have been the end of the story. But the director of the story, the Lord of hosts, had a final lesson to present. The negotiation between the two kings could have been the end of this story. And perhaps this would have been a good war movie. A lot of action, and then Ahab goes home happy with the victory. But there is a final plot in this story. There is a final turn of events in this story, a final lesson that the Lord was about to teach. The story that occurs in verses 35 to 37 is very surrealistic in some sense. And no prophet comes out of nowhere and asks a bro- one of his brothers to strike him in the face. Not because he, he, he wanted that or he liked it, but because this was the word of the Lord to him. God had a plan, a master plan behind that. And this plan was quietly unveiling in the background. We don't know what is happening, but it's following, falling into place. The prophet very didactically, shows the consequence of not obeying the voice of the Lord. As the first prophet disobeys this command of the Lord, he is met with a lion. And this immediately should remember, remind us of 1 Kings chapter 13, making us think that the consequence of disobeying the voice of the Lord, the word of the Lord, is to meet with a devouring lion. In both cases, there is a devouring lion waiting for those who disobey the word of God. And though the, the story is rather unusual, unusual, the point is simple and common. Condemnation follows those who don't obey the word of God. And if a prophet is punished this way for not fulfilling the word of God to hurt another prophet... How much more will Ahab, who is spared an enemy of God? There are severe consequences for not obeying the word of God. Later, Peter Lehard said this. Can you imagine David and Goliath fighting to a draw and then going off to share a pent? We might as well imagine Jesus dining with the devil. 
It has to be done. It's not an opinion. It's a command. Authoritative voice of the Lord. And of course, after all this fearful event, the next prophet was very willing to cooperate. Verse 37. He was very much willing to obey this time the voice of the Lord. And then after he, he receives the punch, he, he, the prophet disguises himself and goes to meet with Ahab. And then he proposes Ahab with this story. That he was there in the heat of the battle... And he received a prisoner to guard. Verse 39. Keep this man. If by any means he be missing, then shall thy life be for his life. Or else thou shalt pay a talent of silver. Simply put it, his duty was, take care of this prisoner. If he escapes, you either pay with your life, or you will pay one talent of silver. See, one talent of silver was about 66 pounds of silver. A soldier would not have this amount of money. So that was pretty much death sentence. If you leave this prisoner, prisoner go, you will pay with your life. Death sentence. And the prophet presents Ahab this charade. And the answer appears to be obvious. So Ahab answers quickly. He's quick to answer, verse 40. Ahab's answer is quick and merciless. Only life could pay for life. Only life could pay for life, for another life. So the prophet then removes his disguise. He removes the disguise that was around him and gives the king the sentence, verse 42. And he say unto him, Thus saith the Lord. This time not with good news, but with a message of judgment. Because thou hast let go out of thy hand a man whom I appointed to order destruction. Therefore thy life shall go for his life. And thy people for his people. This is kind of a Thou art the man moment. Just like as Nathan did with David, right? It's the same thing. The prophet reveals him here. Thou art the man. And as you say, it will happen to you. Thy life for his life. And thy people's life for his people. Notice how the Lord is emphasizing that Ahab committed a war crime. Because he disobeyed the word of the chief commander, God himself. Thou hast let go out of thy hand whom I appointed to order destruction. The Lord of hosts commanded the chief commander. Israel was supposed to follow the Lord's commands. But instead, they were on a way of disobedience for far too long. This utter destruction is a, is a very strong expression. The same expression that Joshua carries out against the Canaanites. Utter destruction. Complete destruction. Nothing would be left. Ahab was so busy in his political negotiation. And blind with pride. That he didn't obey God's command. Now the destruction reserved for Ben-Hadad will follow upon his head. How severe is the consequence of disobeying the word of God? Not only Ahab, but even the people would suffer the consequences. You see how sin has this devastating effect, contaminating effect, that even the people would pay the price of that sin. Oh, it is, it is because the people were guilty of the same sin. They disobeyed God's command for far too long. Now judgment would come. Ahab was quick to act, but is slow to ask for any advice from God. All the prophetic activities in this passage were 
spontaneous, almost against Ahab's expectations. Ahab was quick to hear, to act, but is slow to hear. Ahab was more willing to hear the lies of his enemies than to hear God's word. Do you have that problem sometimes? Sometimes it is easier or it is more seducing to hear the lies of this world than to hear what God's word has to tell us. This idea that you can negotiate with the world and that perhaps you can manage to conciliate your godly walk with God and at the same time walk with the world. To be friends with the world. This idea is not Christian at all. Christianity is very much exclusivist. It's exclusivist religion. So there is opposition. It's antagonic. The, the Christian walk in the world are going to two different places. The biblical commentator Peter Lehard said this. Can you imagine David and Goliath fighting to a draw and then going off to share a pent? We might as well imagine Jesus dining with the devil after his temptation in the wilderness. Pagans are happy to incorporate any new God into the pantheon, including Jesus. But Paul asks... What harmony has Christ with Belial? Far from deleting enmity from history, Christianity immeasurably and fundamentally deepens it. Christianity is very much about opposition with the world. It's a war. There is no negotiation. No talk. We are going to two different places, heaven and hell. You cannot walk both walks at the same time. You see, the world is happy to say, yes, sure, you want to believe in Jesus, you can. You see, you need to respect my view. It's nonsense. If if we believe this gospel... We believe there is only way and one way alone to salvation, and that is Jesus Christ and Him alone. This idea that you can negotiate, that you can have peace with the world is wicked. And maybe it will give you peace with your enemies, but it will bring you to utter destruction in the end. Because Ahab didn't listen to this truth. He suffered the consequences. And he went home displeased with God, but not repentant. Verse 43. This passage has many similarities. This last portion with David when rebuked by Nathan. But the difference is that when David realizes who the story was referring to, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. See, when David realized what the story was all about, he bent the knees and he repents. Oh Lord, I have sinned against the Lord of hosts. Forgive me. Don't be mistaken. We are the Israel that has sinned against the Lord. And this passage is for us today too. God is teaching His people, and in each chapter, He's telling us, is slowly bringing us or compelling us by force to a message of repentance. Turn away. Turn away. Repent. While there is time. His warning. You see, destruction is coming. Exile is coming for, for Israel. Judgment is coming. Turn away. Repent. 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 While there is Time. Do you want to know who had more chances than Ahab 
We do. Us. Sunday after Sunday. Turn away. Turn away. Repent while there is time. We we think Ahab was a fool, right? But what about us? How many times have we heard, Thus saith the Lord, turn away. There's no negotiation with the world, and that path will lead to destruction. His judgment is undefiled. It's perfect. Turn away. How long hold ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow Him and Him alone. He is God. He is the Lord of hosts. He is all-powerful and He is merciful. He is just. So follow Him. What are you waiting for? Follow Him. He's merciful to welcome you. He's all-powerful to rule over the universe. And He's just to judge perfectly. First Kings chapter 20 might sound a little harsh to us. A God that announces judgment for sparing another man's life? Is this really a God of mercy? The Lord reigns. He is the sovereign ruler over the universe, not the kings of our days. And as the supreme Lord, he has the right to judge. He will not have his name mocked. He will judge all wickedness. But at the same time, we need to realize that the surprising part of this passage is not that the Lord decreed judgment over Ahab. He had done it already in past chapters, right? But the Lord continued to warn Ahab and his people. God continued to show his grace to his stubborn people. So many signs, so many warns, and such a hard heart. How can this God judge rightly and yet be merciful? How is this possible? How can we conciliate these two things? And maybe you are having a hard time believing that you can approach this God. You have been testing God as the Israelites did. So stubborn. And you don't know if you can come to Him, come to His presence. Brothers, the answer to this question, the answer to this question, lies in one place, in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because God is just. He had to punish every single sin in history. Every single one of them. But because He is merciful, he chose a people for himself. Regardless that we didn't deserve, he chose a people and he punished our sins on Jesus Christ. See, he's perfectly righteous, the judge of the universe, and yet merciful to punish our sins on his only begotten Son. The cross only makes sense when we understand the holiness and justice of God who didn't spare His only begotten Son to pay the price for our sins. God had to go as far as to give His Son to save His stubborn people. Behold, this is how you can approach the Lord of hosts. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5 verse 6. 
You can come to the Lord of hosts through Jesus Christ who died for the ungodly. If he died for the godly, no hope. But he died for the ungodly. And now we can come to the Lord of hosts knowing that it pleased him to save the ungodly like you and me. It is looking to Christ. It is by looking to Jesus Christ that he shall know that I am the Lord. Thus saith the Lord to us today. Amen. Let's pray. Most holy God, Lord of hosts, Lord, thou art all just, all powerful, and yet all merciful. Oh Lord, what a good news for us that thou wilt punish all wickedness and that we need not to fear the kings and rulers of our days. And at the same time, that we need not to fear our own sins and the accusations of Satan that lies against us. Because there is a way to approach thee through Jesus Christ. We stand before thee today, Lord, as thy people in the wilderness who heard thy voice And we plead with thee, Lord, let thy voice be heard, let thy name be known, and let thy glory be magnified in our midst. We stand before thee as servants, Lord. Speak to us, change our hearts, and use us as mighty weapons for thy kingdom to proclaim thy name and preach thy gospel to the ends of the world. And we pray this in Jesus' most holy and gracious name. Amen.